The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world through the perspective of our Catholic social teaching. Our Catholic social teaching kind of looks at the world from the dignity of the human person, looks at it from what are those things which enhance fairness in the world, which uh, build the human potential. And they kind of fall in a variety of different areas. The area of work, they fall in the area of the environment, the area of participation in civic life. They also deal with the family. And those aren't everything that they deal with, but those are some of the major items that, you know, Catholic social teachers focuses on. And when we look at what's going on in the world, um, we kind of bring those perspectives to bear on the, on the, on those items. And so, um, this week we are going to be speaking about a couple of things that are very, very diverse and very different. I mean, we're going to be speaking about international issues. And we're going to be speaking about neighborhood issues. And one of the things that I find to be very kind of rich, enriching about kind of our Catholic perspective on the world is that we certainly focus on the widest range of things. So it is very, very important to us what is going on internationally and how the international community is responding to different problems and different issues. But What's going on in the local neighborhood, in the community, with uh, individual families, that also is of tremendous value to us. And so, therefore, we kind of look at both of those, and therefore, we look at them from the perspective of how we try to make the world more just, we try to make it more compassionate, and we do it both locally and we do it uh, globally. And so uh, with with that, I would very much like to introduce our first guest, who is Adam Sexton, who is a research associate with the International Security Program for the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Adam, thank you so much for being with us on Just Love and uh, sharing your uh, your expertise. Thanks for being with us. Yes, thank you for having me. Great. So uh, tell us a little bit, what is the Center for Strategic and International Studies? Certainly. Yeah, I mean, CSIS, or the Center for Strategic and International Studies, is a, is a nonprofit think tank located in Washington, D.C., where we focus on a wide variety of issues, often focusing on kind of national security. Uh, we're a bipartisan institution. We don't take partisan stances on, on any particular issue and really try to focus on the kind of the hard national security facts. And so tell us, how'd you wind up there? Yeah, I mean, so I, uh, <clears throat> coming out of college, I actually had actually interned at uh, CSIS and, and specifically in their international security program. And uh, after going off and getting my master's degree at the University of Chicago, uh, studying international relations, I decided to come back. And so they were, they were happy enough to take me. And uh, I've since been working as a research associate there, uh, focusing on uh, U.S. military force structure. And um, so let's let's get right into it. I mean, and again, let's for the moment um, kind of assume that um, our listeners, well, it's absolutely true because I'm not as versed in these matters as, 
as you are. So let me just say it this way. I was a little surprised when um, there, I learned that there were these kind of a drone attacks um, or that when they were attacked at the end of June. Um, so what, what happened there? Would you give, give, a, give me the primer so that I can understand what, is going, what was going on there. Yeah, so what's been going on, and you see this in the news, is that uh, there's been a series of Iranian-backed uh, militia groups uh, known as kind of the, loosely under the umbrella of the Popular Mobilization Forces, uh, loosely connected to the Iraqi army, essentially. And these groups have been, uh, under you know, heavy Iranian influence, have been launching rocket and UAV attacks. You know, we're not talking like Predator drones that the United States military uses. We're talking like smaller smaller UAVs, basically flying bombs, uh, on U.S. Uh, military uh, personnel and bases within, within the region in Iraq and Syria. And these strikes have been going on for, for quite some time. They were taking place in the, the years before and the Trump administration have continued into the into the Biden administration. And what has when we were looking at the most recent airstrikes that the Biden administration conducted on June 27th, it was specifically in response to these strikes or these uh, these uh, rocket and UAV attacks that have been uh, targeting U.S. Uh, personnel and bases. And uh, this is the second of these strikes, uh, airstrikes that the Biden administration has conducted, uh, first being uh, back in February 25th in response to these. And now again, and recently in June. So we're kind of seeing in a kind of emerging pattern here uh, coming up. So, Adam, I mean, this is not technically a research question or whatever, but it's, it's kind of my question. Um, they, these didn't seem to make much noise. I mean, they seem to come and go and like, to be perfectly honest, and this is my ignorance, I even forgotten about the ones in February. They, they didn't seem to make much of a, of a stir. Did they, or am I just kind of have my head in the sand? I mean, it, it all depends on which circles you're following for different national security groups. This is this is quite a stir. But um, so I think uh, two things I'd note here. First of all, uh, the, the February ones were particularly notable because it was the first time the Biden administration had publicly used force uh, in in the Middle East, and so that was. Yeah, but Adam, uh, you got to give them a little chance. They were only in administration for. 40 days. I mean, exactly. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's pretty quick if you ask me. <laughs> exactly. And it was viewed as a, in many ways, uh, okay, is this the, how, how willing is the Biden administration? Uh, how willing are they to use uh, force and to respond to some of these acts of aggression that these Iranian backed militias use? So that's, that was significant in its own right. But it also comes at the same time that there's debates in Congress about changing the, what are known as authorizations for the use of military force or AUMF for short, uh, which Congress has you know, enacted uh, almost 20 years ago to target the terrorist groups behind 9-11 and then later for the, in 2002 uh, for threats posed by Iraq. And the, these authorities have been on the books for a long time and many of you has been uh, interpreted creatively and abusively. And thus, these are on the, on the cusp of being reformed. So these, these airstrikes are coming at the same time as there's debates in Congress about the exact same authorities that potentially the president may or may not be using. And again, it, uh, again speaking to that, that issue for a moment. Um, yeah. my, my looking at these debates is, I think, um, uh, the reason why they're 20 years old and they haven't been updated is because I do think, this is my opinion, I do think that Congress is perfectly comfortable to complain about whenever a president uses them and saying they've exceeded it or not exceeded it. And the reason why they're not going to be updated is because Congress, as with almost every other policy issue, doesn't want to take responsibility where then they can they have to run in their primary election on a position that they've taken. But that's just my kind of cynical assessment of Washington, D.C. But that's from 250 miles away, not where you are. 
I mean, I think that's that's the basic consensus, and people would agree with you on that. Is that so? At the end of the day, Congress is in Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution, given the power to declare a war, and has the, that responsibility as well. And uh, the problem has been is that uh, okay, so we have these authorizations that were passed, you know, in the immediate aftermath of nine eleven, and if if these authorities are going to be renewed in trying to actually act, uh, effectively restrain the president or, or or be meaningful in that sense or try to target more recent groups, they would affect congressmen would actually effectively authorize a new authorization for the use of military force. Well, that would effectively be a continuation, uh, arguably of or perceived to be as a of the forever war. So we don't want to do that. But at the same time, oh well, if you are the one in charge of abolishing these authorities, well then now you're restricted the president's ability to target uh, threatening terrorist groups, and they don't want to be on the record for that either. So that's where it's a, it creates this constant political bind, which has led to the situation we have today. Can you, uh, we're, we're speaking with Adam Saxton, who is research associate uh, with the International Security Program for the Center for Strategic and International uh, Studies. Um, so can you kind of update our listeners a little bit on the current state of affairs in that part of the world, why, I mean, it doesn't seem like either the, the, the drone attacks against the U.S. Uh, personnel and facilities, um, do they have any purpose, a strategic purpose? And did our airstrikes do anything? I mean, tell us, the, you know, I mean, what, why were they done and did they achieve anything? Yeah. So, I mean, some of the issues are, I mean, still very much developing. So since the Biden administration has since conducted the airstrikes, for example, which were explicitly conducted to degrade, disrupt, and then ultimately to deter future rocket attacks, it's, it's worth noting that these attacks have continued. Uh, and as some reports have it, uh, you know, almost on a daily basis since these airstrikes were conducted. So in, in many ways, the, the attacks are, are, are ongoing on U.S. On US military bases and personnel. Uh, thankfully, uh, there's been relatively few reported uh, deaths. There's been some reported uh, threats of injury and harm. Uh, and then uh, the response, actually, way back in February, there, there was one reported death of a Filipino contractor. So these have been kind of continuing going on. And, and the airstrikes the Biden administration has been conducting in response, many of you as a, it's kind of a mix of trying to, to escalate just enough so that way you can de-escalate the, the issue. So they're targeting facilities in a way that are not exactly inflicting the, the largest amount of casualties, but hopefully, you know, destruct, uh, uh, hindering those facilities in the first place from being used to launch these ongoing UAV attacks. Uh, I mean, and as for some of the broader strategic picture, I'm not an exactly regional expert on all these issues, but in, in broad strokes, the, the U.S. military is maintaining a, a low, a relatively low number of, of troops in the area as an, as an attempt to continue to, uh, you know, to rebuild and train the Iraqi military and at the same time um, suppress uh, uh, any possibility of ISIS emerging as a new uh, threat in the future. And these Iranian-backed militia groups are then targeting these U.S. troops, which are based in Iraq. So you just mentioned something. You have these Iranian-backed groups that are in Iraq, and then we talk about Syria. You know, maybe for the sake of our listeners, could you kind of give just a real broad uh overview, and, and let me phrase it in this way, um, you know, from the little bit that I know, is that a number of these country borders that we now kind of see on maps, Iran, Iraq, etc., those places, that the people in the region would not have thought about those as, quote unquote, countries or nation states a century ago. And somehow, because of conflict, colonization, wars, etc., 
that some of these geographic boundaries or nation boundaries were kind of imposed uh, as there was some geopolitical stuff going on. Can you give us just a very high level sense of that? Yeah. So as I understand it, so following basically the, the World War One, World War Two, like some of these major, as you mentioned, geopolitical events, that's when a lot of the nations, a lot of the borders for these countries were drawn. I think it's the, the Sykes-Pickett Agreement that was first uh, uh, passed and agreed upon that kind of established what, what we now know as like Iraq and Syria and some of these in some of these areas. And yes, and that and that is you know divided up different groups. Uh, the Kurdish uh, uh, forces and people are famously uh, divided up between several different countries here as a result. And so, yeah, so there is there is kind of a, an example where the world was divided up following the end of major wars and fallen into countries that uh, that uh, I mean, that are still still present today. So so, Adam, let let's make you a little bit um, in charge of the world. OK, for a moment. Um, are there some kind of policy initiatives in that area that you think should be undertaken that would kind of reduce the tensions and increase the the peace or the in those areas. Yeah, I mean, I'm primarily focusing on on questions of uh, presidential authority, but on this particular issue, uh, I mean, I think the thing that just needs to be carefully monitored is when the United States is conducting airstrikes in in this area, is that we need to be careful that these strikes do not continue to evolve into an ongoing campaign against Iranian-backed proxies in the area, and we need to be very careful with the escalation uh, concerns that come that come with these airstrikes. On the one hand, uh, the president does have a responsibility to protect U.S. forces in the area, and so to the extent that we are continuing to stay there, and to the extent that uh, we're continuing to uh, trying to suppress the threat of an emerging, um, you know, re-emerging ISIS. Uh, the United States is then opening itself up to to attacks from on, that are ongoing from these uh, from these militia forces. And uh, we, we saw with uh, the Trump administration's previous uh, January third strike, uh, twenty twenty uh, strikes on Qasem Soleimani, kind of Iranian's chief intelligence uh, officer, that it, you know these kind of things can escalate to, to a very significant degree. And the United States needs to be careful. Uh, that it doesn't find itself into a kind of more or less a de facto uh, proxy war with Iran at the same time. It doesn't necessarily mean the United States needs to do nothing, but this is like the one major policy issue of, of walking that fine line that I think the United States needs to be careful of doing in the Middle East right now. So, so, so Adam, um, you know, from the perspective of our kind of Catholic lens, um, we think that war, international war, um, should be the last resort in um, in resolving conflicts that we should try other ways of, of doing that first. And one of the things in our looking at, you know, uh, what would be a just war is that it is declared by, you know, a competent authority to do it. So I know I, I mentioned before a little bit of my cynical perception that uh, we probably weren't going to get um, much movement in terms of the um, the authorization for military uh, force. But, you know, from your perspective, how do we balance um, the need of a president to be able to respond to an immediate threat, but yet, to use a classic term, the checks and balances that the Constitution says, um, you know, this. And, and is there a bunch of questions, you unpack them however you want. I mean, is there a difference between, quote unquote, and all-out war, and and I don't mean to mitigate this, but dropping a few bombs to send a message, you know. And I don't mean that, but it, it, how do you sort that out when you look at 
presidential and congressional authority in these areas? Yes. So, I mean, this is this is the million dollar question and uh, it, it's difficult. to well, we want the million dollar answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to I'll try to sketch out the broad contours of it. OK. Um, yeah. I mean, so Congress hasn't declared war since World War Two, essentially. And this is it's not just Congress uh, in the United States. This is kind of something of a global phenomenon. Uh, declarations of war have have precipitously dropped. There's been, there's been fewer of them. Uh, there's kind of some broader strategic um, phenomenon going on here. There haven't been as many as many major power wars that have been declared or that have been waged since then as well. But it is a it is the tough balance between what is the president authorized to do under Article Two constitutional authority as commander in chief versus what the what Congress should ultimately should ultimately have authority for. So generally, uh, presidential administrations have interpreted Article Two of the Constitution to provide the president with some ability to use limited force uh, to defend U.S. forces. the The problem is that this has and many times uh, been interpreted quite expansively, even all the way back to the Korean War, uh, was done without congressional authorization. And when you look at the current strikes, you know, we have two strikes that have been conducted over the course of basically two days that were months apart. Uh, you know, in the past, you know, the, the, you know, the Article II authorities, uh, just, just the president's own constitutional authority without relying on Congress, was used to authorize force in, in Somalia, Bosnia, Haiti in, in the 1990s. And then, uh, you know, famously, the Obama administration used it uh, for the air campaign against Libya. In 2011, that lasted several months, uh, involving thousands of air sorties uh, that continued on, on basically just the president's uh, own uh, executive authority. So, so Adam, let me ask you to because you've used two words. And is there a difference between engaging in war and using force? Yeah, I mean, this is that that. Yes. And so I would say that in general, people would describe like there's kind of a war in like a legal technical sense, which is, you know, the Congress has declared war, which is right. a state of war under international law that tends to be associated with, you know, broader, more, more unlimited conflicts. Um, you could argue that it's been associated increasingly with, with total war over, over the 20th century, you know, something like World War II uh, right. versus a more limited conflict that you could argue this is more like, you know, a, a light footprint approach. You could call it limited airstrikes. Uh, the, the problem is, is that when people start to, to mix those two, uh, you know, the Korean War was famously undeclared. Uh, this, is, this is an example where you, where, where you could try to hide a conflict that is actually quite large just by not calling it war. Yeah, and, and again, a little bit later than that, we refer to it as the, um, the Vietnam War, and, uh, and then we refer to the authorization as the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. We don't refer to it as the Gulf of Tonkin declaration of war. And so, uh, as you pointed out, I guess it's an area in which, I don't want to say there's ambiguity, but but we don't like to declare war, I would think. Correct. And so far, every time the, the Congress has declared war, they've done so at the behest of the president, the president asking either in a formal address before Congress or in a letter to Congress saying, we please declare war on, this, on these countries. That, is, that has not happened since the end of World War II. Uh, yeah. So it is a little give and take with both as well. Yeah. And I would, you know, I would say that, um, you know, it, I, I think, and this is a question of our current state of our democracy in this country. I, I don't mean this to be partisan in any way, because it doesn't seem to matter whether we have Republicans or Democrats. Um, this is my cynical approach that Congress keeps getting paid for not being able to legislate anything. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I'd be willing to bet. I'd be willing to bet that if the president asked for a declaration of war, he couldn't get it today because 
facts, even if it was really very, very obvious, it'd probably be pretty hard to get it through Congress in this day. I don't know. that. That's just my kind of perception of the stalemate we're dealing with in, in Washington. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it would have to be something incredibly major, something uh, com- completely undeniable to probably to probably get that through at this point, which which hopefully that that circumstance will never, never arise. Yeah. Um, would would you if we could? I mean, I, I know in some cases now um, it seems that we delegate some sensitive things to a, um, you know, to intelligence committees that they're confidential and stuff like that. Is there a mechanism where you could create a committee of Congress or a joint committee that kind of would vet some potential uses of, of force that would could be helpful? Yes. So there have been proposals to do exactly that effectively. Uh, so first of all, there should be consultations with Congress and briefing. I mean, there's for the war powers resolution the president does after the fact within 48 hours, you know, provide a report uh, saying this is why we use force. Uh, but there's been other measures that have been proposed, uh, for example, to reform these authorizations for the use of military force. Um, for example, if you are expanding the number of terrorist groups that you're pursuing um, beyond the ones that originally included in the scope, that then it would have to, you, the president would have to submit a report to Congress who then can you know, have an emergency session or an expedited session to uh, review whether or not they approve or disapprove, um, or in that case, it would have to be disapproved. And that was like a part of a proposed reform back in 2018 uh, that, was, that ultimately didn't go anywhere. But, uh, yeah, so there, there are some measures that, that the president should do this in good faith, but at the same time should be doing it uh, on a greater uh, statutory basis as well. You know, you just introduced uh, uh, the topic of, of terror and is not another complicating fact that in so many of these uh, kind of international situations, you have, you, you have more and more non-state actors who seem to be the source of some of the violence and some of the um, the disruption. Yes, and that's exactly the problem: is that we have non-state actors that are conducting you know armed attacks upon states. And the United States was so say if these groups are operating out of Syria and Syria is not going to suppress the threat, uh, then there's kind of a, a contradiction between the Syria's right to sovereignty and you know to control its own borders and the United States' right to self-defense uh, or or other countries in areas right to self-defense and so. There, there's how, how do you reconcile that? Um, one thing that the Biden administration actually did mention in its, in its letter back in February is that uh, it mentioned that the Syria was unwilling or unable to suppress these these uh, non-state actors, and uh, this is a somewhat of a controversial standard because it does it does try to reconcile these, but it has had some growing support internationally, which basically says if, if you're unwilling or unable to suppress these these non-state groups, then you know if they're launching armed attacks, then that state has the the right to uh, to to suppress them themselves. So it's it's controversial, but yeah, this is this is exactly the issue and these groups are con- and that's this the real problem with these authorizations is that they're these groups are growing they're changing it, it's, it's evolving on an almost a daily basis and it's hard to come up with an authorization that targets one specific group that's still going to be relevant to address threats that are going to you know come up in two or three or four years from now you know in my um you know my memory uh, which is which is much longer than yours adam because i'm significantly older than you we whenever there was an international issue or something at least one of the topics that made it onto the agenda is, should there be a United Nations Security Council peacekeeping force that, you know, deals with the situation? You know, unless I completely have missed it, I don't hear many of those conversations in the past decade or or more. Uh, have I missed it or 
is it true? The, that type of, of approach seems to be less and less talked about. Yeah. I mean, those types of missions are still conducted in, in, in areas, you know, whether that base, say, for example, in Kosovo, following the conflict there in the 90s. Um, Pardon in, me, that's 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it, has, it hasn't been as much. I mean, there's current conversations saying that, for example, if there's a force that moves into to Haiti right now, to given mm-hmm. all the current civil disturbances, that should be an international force that should be connected right. with that. I think the problem with the Middle East in some of these areas is you also you know you're dealing with the UN Security Council, uh, right. two of the members, which are Russia and China, uh, that have to come, that have to be approving of some of these as well. And so you're going to have conflicts on, you know, what that force should be, how it should operate, um, plus, you know, a broader number of logistical uh, factors as well. But, yeah, I think you're right that it, they don't they don't come in quite as quite as much as they used to. Well, and I, and I also think the issue we just talked about a little bit before is is that we're we're dealing with so many non-state actors and, and the United Nations is set up to deal with states and conflicts, you know, among states. And so it, mm-hmm. it's it's almost. You know, it, it, the structure is 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 not is not what what it's set up to do. And how do you how do you resolve it? So um, anyway, Adam, I, I'm grateful for you taking the time to be with us. Um, is there any kind of final thoughts or ideas or information that you think would be helpful for our listeners with regard to the whole area that we've been talking about? Yeah. Well, I think it is just, it's incredibly important to, I mean, obviously, as a, as a foreign affairs expert, I say, you know, be, be aware of the issues, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a classic, it's a classic answer. But uh, I do think focusing, you know, knowing your congressman, where they stand on the issue of authorization for the use of military force, these debates are in Congress right now, they are being voted upon, uh, not necessarily saying it should be, you know, one way or the other, but um, they are current issues. And uh, knowing, you know, where where Congress should stand in regards to the authorization of the use of military force, where the president should stand with those limits, I think is, I think is really important to pay attention to right now. So, Adam, I, I know we talked about this and the political stalemate in Washington, but if you had your druthers from somebody who does research and who looks at this from an analytical point of view, would you say that you think it might make, it would make sense for us to try to update that act and to make it more relevant you know, to the current world? Yes, I think it is worth updating right now. Um, obviously, you can't just, I, I would argue that if you are completely abolishing something without replacing it, then that kind of creates a gap in authorities, which then right. the president would probably fill his own executive article to authorities, which then kind of creates that imbalance again. So they need to be updated at the same time as they're being, as they're being repealed. And uh, you're seeing some movement on that right now. Um, the 2002 AUMF that was targeting Iraq is, is currently kind of on the docket uh, before the Senate right now. And so it's not currently being used uh, for military operations per the Biden administration, but that's kind of some low-hanging fruit that could potentially be in the mix on this as well. Adam Saxton, Saxton, Research Associate with the International Security Program, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Adam, I learned a lot. I know our listeners did. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. And, and thanks for the important work that you're doing. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Great. Tom, I think we will take a break, and when we'll come back, we'll move from international to local, and um, we'll talk about what's going on in the summer in a particular neighborhood of New York City. Um, So let's take a break. But before we do, I would like to remind our listeners, just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, and our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Join us when we come back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. 
now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. We talk weekly about what's going on in the world from the perspective of our Catholic social teacher. Um, Tom Dobbins lines up great guests for us. We just uh, had a really good conversation, Tom, about um, presidential authority, international uh, use of force. Tom, what was your impression? Anything you learned from that conversation? Because I know you, you're pretty well versed in this area. Anything you thought about? Yeah, I'm going I, you know, for me, from my perspective, I thought it was very interesting when, um, you know, we kind of, I think in the back of, and I think you may mention this, in the back of our minds, we hear about these um, drone attacks, right, in uh, Syria or in Iraq. And we kind of just, it's its become part of the concophony of things that are just going on in the world that we just sort of accept, right? We just say, okay, well, there's bad actors over in that part of the world and you know, these drone attacks are happening, you know, but I think Adam raises is, is, you know, maybe these are things we really have to think about because, you know, if, if we're still, you know, the president obviously has the authority to, you know, um, you know, uh, direct our military forces to do what in his estimation he feels that need to do to protect Americans. But at the same time, you know, you, I think we have to think about how that authority is exercised and what control really there is, um, it, it's almost gotten drawn into the same kind of situation as you made mention, Doug Senior, where, you know, Congress has a role in this and they've sort of absconded with their role, right? You know, in other words, if you think about it, it's like, again, it's almost like we have um, the president, a new administration comes in and they kind of leave all the policymaking to the new administration and then they're free to criticize Either way, when in reality, we should be having these debates about, you know, how we use force, what force we should be using and how and, and what authorizations behind that force. Yeah, I, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit on times in the past on the show. And my opinion is that the just war theory as as currently kind of formulated has really diminished tremendously in its usefulness. Mm-hmm. I think, um, I really think it would be worthwhile trying to reformulate it in a way that takes into con- consideration the new world that, that we are living in. I know some people try to say, well, you can apply the principles and you have to realize the new things. But I also think that there comes a point when you, when the, when the framework just doesn't correspond to the, to the world that that uh, that we live in, and I do think uh, the issue for me, which is um, a couple of issues, which make it so difficult to apply the just war theory uh, as traditionally formulated, is the is the existence and the prevalence of uh, non-state actors. Yeah, I yeah. think that's a critical issue. I also think. Um, terrorism is an issue that is critically uh, impacts on that. And then I think the other issue, which is very, very, you know, controversial is kind of preemptive um, actions, if you know something's happening. So, but I do think 
you know, the, I, I do think the framework that we have traditionally used for the just war theory has a tremendous amount of good values that are in it. But at the same time, I think it is so very, very difficult to kind of figure out how you apply them in the current world that we, you know, that we, uh, that we live in. So mm-hmm. anyway, but uh, anyway, so let's go on to our next guest. I'm delighted that our next guest is Monique Myers, who is the director of the Youth Employment Program with Alianza, uh, which is a program of Catholic charity, primarily in northern Manhattan and somewhat in, in the Bronx. Uh, Monique, thank you so much for being with us on Just Love. Thank you, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, for having me. It is a pleasure to be here today. Well, I am absolutely delighted. So give our listeners a little bit of your own background. How did you wind up um, working with Alianza? Oh, well, that's a great question. Uh, noting that I am now the director of the Alianza Youth Employment Programs. I came in as an SYP participant back in 2013. It was my sophomore year of college. Um, my One of my first job experiences. And I, I must say that because of the rush and because of everything that was happening, it, it helped me spark and ignite my, uh, my business management skills. So I was very much happy to get selected through SYP and continue working there. So let me, uh, Monique, let's cut right to the chase. Um, so tell us about your experience in uh, 2013 as a participant in the program. Oh, man, what a, SYP is quite a ride. Um, it comes in and then it goes. Uh, we were, I want to say, faced with over 2,000 young people that summer. Um, I saw the director at the time, Ilse Fajardo, and she she looked as if, um, I want to say, the star of the program. Um, and I just wanted to see how I could best help her and help the team ensure that all of our 2,000 young people were where they needed to be and having a great experience that summer because that's what's all what SYP is all about, ensuring that young people know exactly what they're doing and having a great time and in sparking their career exploration. So that, that's how you got involved in it. You were, you were one of the youth employment students, right? Yes, I was. Um, I started at, as a director's assistant. Um, I want to say shortly after that, a couple two weeks later, um, they asked me to be the liaison at Columbia University Medical Center's um, Office of Community Affairs to help them um, even spark their um, SYP program and ensure everything was running smoothly. Great. And so tell us a little bit about that. What were some of the things that you, you did? So I helped mentor the young people in understanding the different career paths that um, Columbia had to offer. Um, a lot of our young people were, uh, I want to say, assistants to doctors, assistants to medical, um, billing assistants, um, and getting them to understand that there is a career path within those different fields, um, and that they continue should so they could should continue to explore different things within the medical center to see if that is the best fit for them. Um, so it was great to to help young people navigate that and also understand the different career or educational aspects that took in order to be successful in those fields. So, all right. So, Monique, um, it seems to me that as a participant, you had a pretty good experience of the um, of the program, right? Yes, I did. Okay. So now let's go forward a little bit. Um, Tell us a little bit about the program now, since you're the director of the program. Oh, Monsignor, uh, as a director of the program, I must say, 
I, I know I, I thought it was a lot of work, but now experiencing it now, it's, it's definitely a tremendous a lot of work, but it's also rewarding. Um, we have 2,000 young people this summer. Um, as you know, we're now recovering from a pandemic as best as we can. And our young people are trying to figure out what their roles are within that recovery. Um, a lot of young people are faced with whether or not they should go outside um, to work or should they stay at home. Um, so it's been a challenge um, getting young people to find that balance um, and also getting our employers to be on board too, our partners. So I must say that um, every day is a learning experience for us and also our young people. But as long as we're here to support them and guide them through their journey, I do believe that they will be successful. So, Monique, this summer, you mentioned some people um, may want to stay at home, go out to work, etc. Of the, how many, what'd you say, more than 2,000 um, kids who are part of the summer youth program? So there are a total, I want to say, almost 160,000 young people part of SYP this summer. Right. Um, and within Catholic Charities, we have 2,000 young people. And over 50% of our young people um, want that flexibility. They want to be able to choose whether or not they will stay home or, or, or come outside. Um, so I want to say we're in that 50% middle range as far as, you know, half of our young people are inside and half of our people are um, outside. So give our listeners, we're speaking with, Monique Myers, who is the director of the Youth Employment Program at Alianza in New York City uh, with Catholic Charity. So give our listeners a little bit of sense. What are some of the, it's employment, so what are some of the jobs that um, that our young people are doing this summer? And give, so us, Monique, give us a little sense of both the jobs that people are doing who are actually doing them on site and then maybe a little bit of sense if, if people are doing it remotely, what are they doing remotely? So give us a little sense of that. Gotcha. So when it comes to our older youth that are outside, um, majority of our, young, our older youth are helping out most of our camps, our schools, um, and our summer rising sites. Um, so they can prepare their, their young people to return back to school come September. Um, a lot of our businesses are returning back or, or having some trouble with um, getting employers in. Our young people are filling those employment opportunities to ensure that they are coming back and being able to bounce back. Um, when it comes to young people that's working remotely, uh, they're helping out some of our medical offices, ensuring that um, their patients and our clients are, are, are aware of their appointments and are, are making sure that they're doing their different things in order to stay healthy. Um, we also have some young people that are helping out some real estate firms and um, some infrastructure and developers um, continue building the buildings um, throughout New York City so that we have some housing for our communities. Uh, we also have young people that are in a hybrid mode of working um, with most of our city agencies and our, and our um, government officials um, to ensure that we are responding to community and their needs um, so that they could be comfortable with this return. So, Monique, let me ask you a question that I've heard people ask me, and I kind of know the answer to it, but, um, but let me ask it to you in this way, okay? Sometimes people say, well, these aren't real jobs. I mean, these are not, this really isn't a good work experience. It's a summer program. They really don't work hard. The kids don't work hard. They kind of do a little bit of stuff, and it's not really all that great a program. What do you say to people who, who kind of challenge us and kind of make comments like that? What do you say? Well, I say we should give young people the opportunity to shine. 
um, one thing that most people that say those things, they're not allowing young people to show the skills that they currently have in order to impact the workforce. They're, they're not giving the young people the opportunity to do those different tasks that may a regular employee can do. Um, I also want to say that the young person, young people have a, a, a huge advantage in order to get long time or part time employment by just showing their employer that they have the capacity to do the job just like anyone else. But the young people have to be afforded the opportunity, given the opportunity to do the work in order for them to succeed. Um, so let me ask you another question, I mean, because you've been around there for at least a, a little while. Um, how, let me phrase this negatively, you know, how bad has the pandemic been in kind of really hurting our young people's kind of educational progress? So I want to say that I'm dealing with calls every day when it comes to this subject. Um, our young people have been impacted tremendously when it comes to remote learning. Um, a lot of our young people and our parents are not technical savvy. Um, they do not know how to navigate these platforms. So it has been a huge disadvantage for our young people in their learning process. Um, I know that there are star, star young people or young people that strive in this field of learning how to do work online, but it's just not for everyone. Um, some people need that hands-on approach, that that person that's going to stay with them on the phone call for 30 minutes to an hour to ensure that they're navigating how to get onto Google Classroom and how to navigate those assignments online. Um, I just think that it takes patience. It takes patience. It takes support. And we need, um, I want to say, more people that has the time and the patience to do that to ensure that every young person is where they need to be academically. So, Monique, I, I think I know enough to know that they kind of redid the summer youth program this year to kind of add a little bit more of an academic component to that. Am I right, right with that, where they called it kind of summer rising? Could you, so, could you yes. speak a little bit to that? Okay, so we do have this track two model, which is new. Um, this is something that we adopted last year already, though, so it's not new to us. Um, we leverage most of our SUNY Attain labs throughout the state to offer professional and technical training opportunities to our young people. So they're getting coaching and certifications in Microsoft Excel, Microsoft Word, Microsoft Office, all these different ways that we're learning how to utilize this computer that we have been able to rely on the last year. So our young people are becoming knowledgeable with those different softwares. Um, and we're seeing that a lot of the tech fields, Microsoft, Google, are looking for young people that know how to navigate these platforms. So young people right now have that huge advantage by getting those certifications and able to, I want to say, get into those different industries. So it's been a great, 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 great help. Monique, the other thing that I was kind of talking about is, didn't they redo some of the summer youth employment stuff this year? and called it Summer Rising, where they added kind of academics, like in the morning, in addition to some of the other things. Didn't, didn't they try to do some of that? So not essentially, we're not a part of Summer Rising. That's more of a, a DOE summer school. Uh, I want to okay. say that was their initiative to get young people ready and going back to September right. um, in school. Okay. But that, so that's different than the summer employment program. Yes. Okay. But so we are Monique, supporting some rising sites, though. Okay. So, um, so Monique, let me ask you this. I mean, you've kind of been part of this. You now direct the program. What are some of the kind of changes 
that you would like to see in the program to make it even more effective for our young people? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I definitely want to hone on flexibility. I, I think that we have to continue to be flexible. I think that our employers and our partners and our, and our funders have to understand that the, we're trying to get back to a sense of normal, but not really, right? We have to examine the different barriers that are facing our communities. Um, young people want to be in control of their time and their environment, and so do the parents, right? Um, so the biggest thing is thinking equitably for everyone, what is attainable for everyone, and also support them um, through that journey, I think is the best thing. Okay. So, Monique, let me play a little bit of a devil's advocate with you, okay, with regard to that. Well, you said our young people kind of want to be in control of their time, you know. Um, so let me ask this, because I've heard some parents say, I mean, I'm not a parent, but I've heard parents say, I just have to tell my kid only so much time on video games, because if I left it completely up to, the, to, to my kid, he or she would be on video games 24 hours a day. Do our teenagers also need a little bit of, of limits in terms of a good use of their time? No, absolutely. I feel like everyone needs structure. Um, but I think it starts with conversation um, with young people. You have to get them to understand that, hey, I understand where you're coming from. I understand what you want. Um, but we also have to find that balance, right? Everything in life needs balance. So if we are able to sit down and understand and reason with every young person, just like we reason with every young individual, I think that we'll find that common ground and young people will be able to see and do the things that we want them to do. Um, but when it comes to the control of their time and their environment, I know that we think about location, like young people want to stay at home and just do these things and they're feeling isolated. But I also know that playing video games for young people, that is in also engagement with their friends, right? Um, but yes, we do encourage young people to go outside and take that walk, you know, um, just engage in something that's academic. So I totally understand where you're coming from when it comes to that too. too. So Monique Myers, the Director of Youth Employment Program of Alianza of Catholic Charities, thank you so much for not so much being with us on Just Love, although I say thank you for that, but thank you for the work and the hard work you do in making sure that 2,000 kids have a good summer youth uh, employment experience. So, Monique, thanks so much for everything you're doing. Thank you guys so much for having me, and I appreciate everything you guys do, too. Great. Have a great day. Okay. Tom, I think we'll take a break. Uh, Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself, and our world will be more just and more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. To Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world. Just do it. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself, and our world will be more just and more compassionate. Hey, Tom, there's a um, little bit of problems going on for Christians in Miramar. And, you know, we talk about religious freedom and the absence of religious persecution. Tell us a little bit what's going on in Miramar. Sure, Monsignor. Well, you know, uh, Christian and ethnic minorities and predominantly Buddhist Myanmar are facing increased opposition under the junta that overthrew the civilian government. You'll remember back on February 1st. Observers have warned that increased danger of persecution of ethnic and religious minorities, including Christians. Uh, and they talked about it at a discussion they held online um, by a um, online conference from International Christian Concerns. Panelists discussed a report put out by International Christian Concerns called Caught in the Crossfire, Myanmar's Christian Minorities. Um, the report revealed details of Christian ethnic minority areas that have been historically faced opposition and persecution under more than five decades of iron-fisted military rule. Uh, in fact, uh, the um, chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom said during the discussion the situation in Myanmar had significantly deteriorated since the coup. She said no ethnic or religious minority has been safe from persecution or discrimination. And then because of airstrikes and indiscriminate attacks by the military, thousands of people have fled their homes and taken refuge in the church and jungle in largely Christian areas. So, Over Tom, it seems so. Um, so what what's happening with um, the the Rohingya Muslims there? Well, you know, I would say, uh, as I understand it, Monsignor, the Rohingya Muslims are still being persecuted by the Buddhist uh, government. You know, the interesting thing about Myanmar is that, you know, that uh, uh, back in 2020 or the beginning of, 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 of this year, Open Doors World Watch uh, said um, the country where uh, – both Christians and Muslims face severe persecution is Myanmar. And what a lot of people don't realize is that religious nationalism is especially strong in Myanmar. And uh, there's much persecution of Christian and Muslims. Um, you know, people don't think oftentimes it's funny, but when you think of religious persecution, you don't often think of, of Buddhists as people who persecute religiously. However, in Myanmar, there is a Buddhist majority and, uh, and religious persecution does happen there. And as you can see, from the persecution of Christians and obviously from the Rohingya that are still being pushed to those camps that are on the border with Bangladesh. And, uh, you know, the situation is still deteriorating there. Yeah. It's also, I think, the situation with a lot of religious persecution, there's always a kind of a mix of a political agenda that is also part of what's going on there. And sometimes the politics serves as a little bit of an excuse for the for the religious persecution or the religious persecution covers for the political persecution. But, but thanks for, for mentioning uh, that. Um, so um, Tom, just quickly tell us uh, about Cuba and is there any Christian involvement in the protests that are there? 
There is, Monsignor. Uh, down in Cuba, there is a movement called the Christian Liberation Movement uh, down in, 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 in Cuba. Uh, the Christian Liberation Movement uh, uh, began uh, back in the 1980s. Um, and what the Christian Liberation Movement has said is it's called on people to pressure communist authorities to hold general elections. As you know, the country's been under demonstrations in its major cities, joined by thousands of protesters this past weekend. Uh, about both um, freedom and the rising death toll from COVID. Um, they were shouting down with, 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 dic- down with dictatorship. Um, and the national coordinator of the Christian liberation movement uh, has said that, um, the, that of the thousands of people who are out in the streets, the Christian liberation movement is part of the people tired of oppression and injustice and are fully identified with their desires. They support their brothers and sisters and all Cubans to demonstrate peacefully for their legitimate rights. So um, I think that's something we should kind of look into a little bit more and maybe have a conversation about what's going on in in there. As you know, I I went with Cardinal Dolan probably, probably about 18 months ago to there and uh, it was very, very interesting, the situation of the church there and its relationship with the state. So I think it's worth talking about. Tom, well, thank you for lining up our guests. Yolanda, thank you for enabling us to be heard. Join us again uh, next week, just like God, neighbor, self, our world will be more compassionate and just. This is the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to The Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.